Today's program has been brought to you by Root 11 Potato Chips. Made with a secret recipe and superior ingredients, their mission is to make an outstanding product in a safe and clean environment. For more information, visit www.rt11.com. Today's program is brought to you by Tabard Inn, new American cuisine in one of Washington, D.C.'s oldest hotels, located in DuPont Circle. For more information, visit tabardinn.com. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network. We're a member-supported food radio network broadcasting over 35 weekly shows live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. Join our hosts as they lead you through the world of craft brewing, behind the scenes of the restaurant industry, inside the battle over school food, and beyond. Find us at heritageradionetwork.org. Hello, and welcome to Snacky Tunes. I'm one half your host, Greg Bresnitz. I'm the other half your host, Darren Bresnitz. Welcome to season 10. Season 10. No one said we could do it. Actually, no one said anything. Uh, no one said anything. I don't even think most people even realize that we've been on for more than a, a couple of weeks or so. Well, that's how you do it. You you tell people season eight, and then ten gets really like you get there really fast, but you don't bother them with the first seven. I'm I'm hoping that with season ten, people go like, "Oh yeah, yeah, no, I've been listening to the tunes. I've been I've been I've been I've been on that tip for a while." And I then do. they can go back and catch up on uh, everything uh, uh, on Apple through all of our podcasts. People are like, send me a couple of posts. I'm like, 162. That's my favorite one. That's the best one. Yeah. Without a doubt. Oh, it gets real deep on 237. Yeah, uh, but- well, listen, I am so excited because we are kicking off uh, season 10 with the patron saint of the hustle, Alan Bennett, of Hedley and Bennett. Uh, just an awesome interview we talk about. The, the rise of her business and being a, an incredible uh, CEO and just kicking butt and taking names. And uh, it's such a fun time. And I was so excited that we got to sit down with her at her incredible factory uh, in L.A. Did you get an apron? I have an apron. Uh, her and Tastemade did a special one. I, I got one. But I got an Apron Squad sweatshirt, which I've been rocking and is very cool. Oh, very cool. And I'm sure mine is in the mail, right? Uh, absolutely. It's in the mail. I sent it to, uh, the rising tide loss. And our good friend, Jameson Fink came back. Jameson did come back. Uh, you know, new year, new me, new wines, wine resolutions. Um, you know, when you, uh, uncork as many bottles as he does, especially, you know, probably at around 2 a.m. on new year's Eve, you have a lot of things to think about in the bottles you've drank and the bottles you have to drink. And so we share some of his resolutions with us that you can apply for uh, your future wine endeavors. And finally, Noise comes in studio and they tell us how their casual cover sets led them to becoming a band in the Brooklyn scene. So sit back, relax, and welcome to Season 10 of Snacky Tunes. We talk about food. About music with musical dudes, finger on the pulse, snacky tunes. But I can't control my mind Well, my eyes are 
Hello and welcome to Snacky Tunes. I am one half your host, Darren Bresnitz, sitting with Ellen Bennett in the wonderful warehouse playhouse, idea house of Headley and Bennett in Vernon, California. Holla! Welcome to the show. Yay! Um, so for those who may not know you by name, they may know you by logo. Because pretty much every restaurant who's sort of cool and in the know is wearing aprons with your ampersand logo on it. This is true. Um, and if you've ever looked at a des- cool design apron or something like that in your favorite restaurant and seen the ampersand, you are the woman behind it. But there are many other people behind it as well. We've got a whole troop. Takes a village. Yes. Um, so quickly, yeah. before we get into um, the real hard-hitting questions about where you grew up and the foods you like to eat, <laughs> for those who don't know what Hedley and Bennett is, what is it? We are... Uh, premium apron and workwear company out of LA and we manufacture every fucking garment here under our roof. True. Um, well, you have two factories. Yeah, it's true. We do. Well, we, we manufacture every single apron here. Yes. All of our work coats and chef coats are manufactured in other factories nearby. Yes. And we have another one in Mexico. So we're expanding all over the damn place. Um, um, and you actually have a relationship to Mexico because yeah fuck yeah I do I'm half Mexican shout it out loud and proud baby um so you grew up in LA I did but then you moved to Mexico City yes for culinary school it's, it's for so, culinary school and a whim let's and, be real okay along a big whim a delicious whim a delicious whim so what drove you to Mexico City, and what year is this? Because Mexican cuisine now, cuisine now is like it's hip, it's cool. Mexico City is like, oh, I'm going there, and everyone's like, I, I think I actually send you the same taqueria yeah. every time to go to. Every time. Every time. <laughs> but um, what drew you then, and and what was the scene like back then? I have to take a little credit for it because it was not cool when I went. What and year is this? It, this was in, I mean, I'm 30 now, and it was 10 years ago. So it was, I was 20. What is that? So 2017, 2007. Yeah. That shit was not cool. No. Not cool. It was like you would get, you know, hij- your cars would get hijacked and all kinds of crazy shit. But I was dying to go to Mexico City because I loved the culture. Having gone to Mexico every year when I was sure. growing up, it was so amazing. And um, my parents kind of wanted me to go one path. And I was like, no, I'm going to go to Mexico. And then I, I just, I fucking loved it. And I was like, I'm going to stay here. And they were very, very fucking anti the idea. Because they had left? or they Well, had- because I was 18 years old living, wanting to live by myself in Mexico City where your car would get hijacked sure. at a stop sign. I mean, it wasn't exactly like prime material for going to college. It was, you know, you go to like Virginia or you go to UCLA right, or something. You go something. to upstate New York to Right, right. right. Yeah, you yeah, go yeah. to like some safe forest-like place, not Mexico City. No, no. We're the only... It was Only hardcore. danger was maybe uh, not making a consummate clear enough. But while you were cooking there, what was like going to culinary school in Mexico City? Well, I didn't dive right into uh, culinary school first. My parents were like, you have to come home. So I decided I'm going to stay there. And what I did was get my Mexican citizenship first. Okay. That was step one. Because then I could have a job. Because my parents also were like, you need to come home. We're not giving you money thinking I would come and home. Like, and I'm like, loophole. shit, I got to figure this out. So then I got my Mexican citizen- citizenship, step one. Then I got a million jobs, a.k.a. hustles. 
And so I was like, I announced the lottery for the Mexican television. I was a simultaneous translator. I fucking gave English lessons. I was doing commercials. I mean, you name it, I was doing it to survive in Mexico. Oh, and then pre-Airbnb, I like rented out an entire apartment and rented all the bedrooms to foreigners in dollars. Wow. So I was hustling, but kind of killing it. Yeah. Um, and also, also like learning how all this shit works and, right. and like getting gritty and, you know, learning to be sort of like a dandelion in the world, like get beat up and just keep growing. Yeah. I mean, there is something with the gig economy of uh, Airbnb and Uber where, and I'm guilty of it, where I'm just like, I feel in one ways, the great thing is about like, I'm a local, I drop in, I got the apartment, I got the ride. Totally. But I do remember traveling being like, especially even when I came out to LA, where am I staying? How am I getting around? Like, what the hell? But it like toughens you up a bit. Oh yeah. So when did you start getting into the food and to cooking? Um, um, it was, I mean, so then after about two years, I was, I went to culinary school and I made a deal with my dad. I said, pay for this, you know, little diploma and then I'll learn how to cook professionally in a kitchen. So technically I studied restaurant management okay. at a culinary school. Okay. And what was cool about that was I learned like business basics. Yeah. But that's one of the things and it's come up even more now that like that should be that should be like the first the fucking first thing you, thing you learn. Jesus, and be, tell me and be about like, it. Hey, this course is nominal fee, uh, totally. and before you drop fifty thousand dollars, here's what it takes to run a restaurant. That's exactly it. So I took a pretty <laughs> unusual route, right? So that program was what maybe nine grand. Yeah. And then I went and got a job. I, I lived in Mexico for like two more years, hustled more, blah blah blah. Lived my life there. Was like, all right. I'm good. Am I going to fucking just stay here and be like some bizarre, rich Mexican-American kid that like made money out of nothing? Or should I go back to the U.S. and like sell all my shit and actually do what I wanted to do, which was cook? Right. So I like stopped all my weird hustles. They were all legal for the record. Legal hustles. I stopped all my legal hustles, sold it all, used that money, went around the world for two and a half months, like slumming it sort of. Nice. What year Um, was this? Uh, 2010. 10, okay. Um, and I, I like went and climbed Mount Fuji. I went all over Europe. I went to England. I went to Argentina. Mm. And I just was jumping in and out of planes. My dad is a pilot for American. and. But were you literally jumping in, jumping out of planes? Well, I did skydive. Okay. Yes, I did. <laughs> so of the world travels, uh, and you, you, you come back and land in L.A., what did you take away from that? Because obviously in Mexico City, it's yeah. the hustling, which has become one of your mantras. Yeah. Uh, but what did you learn from your, your global tour? Um, that the world is really tangible. That was kind of my biggest takeaway. Like, you can touch it. Like, when you can see it and you can touch it, you're like, oh, it's real. I can have that. Yeah. Um, and that for me was very amazing. Like I had this idea of, I'm going to go climb Mount Fuji. And then I got on a plane and then I got the gear and then I showed up and then I climbed the fucking mountain. Right. And that you're like proving to yourself that your ideas can become a reality and doing that enough times. It gives you this confidence, like notches on your belt that you feel like you can do bigger and crazier things. So that was a huge takeaway for me. And that's me. a big thing. And, and and if you don't understand that anything is possible or we're going to bootstrap DIY it, uh, it's tough to do things that are not as crazy as climbing one of the tallest mountains in the world. Right. You go like, oh, I can make this phone call. 
Yeah. Oh, I can write this this thing. Exactly. So you with come, death on your shoulders. With death on your shoulders. Uh, so you come back to LA. Yeah. But but you know what? I have to chime in here. That chime was, in. That was one part that was awesome. But the other part was selling all my shit and not having that tied to materialistic things. Yeah. Not kidding. One of the greatest things I've ever done in my life. Truly, deeply profound to work your ass off for X amount of years, have all this stuff, and then let it all go and realize, oh shit, I can actually do that all over again. And this stuff doesn't define me. I define the stuff and I define the place and I define what I'm going to do and where I'm going to go. And that's so fucking powerful for anybody. Yeah, I mean, that purge when you move or when you get rid of your stuff is, you're going like, I don't need this. But this was like deep purge. This was house... Furniture, clothing, everything was gone. I basically came back to L.A. after four years with a suitcase. So when you got back to L.A., what's the first thing you got? What did you miss? What did you miss? Dude, I moved into my mother's house. After all that, (laughs) talk about getting your fucking head slammed into the ground. You're like, wait, what? Reality check? You're not just like gallivanting? And I thought, holy shit, I really am starting from the bottom again. Were you back in your old bedroom? Yes! Oh, <laughs> God. All I needed were, like, violins to come out. Did I mean, you have any, like, cool posters from growing up still on the wall? No, they had removed everything. It was just, like, a sad green bed. That was it. <laughs> so you're back in L.A. Yeah. You've learned how to cook. Yeah. You've got some business proficiency. Yes. Traveled the world. Would, but all you wanted to do was cook. Yeah. So where'd you go? So I, a friend of mine gave me a list of the top 10 restaurants in LA and she said go between the hours of two and four bring a resume and talk to these chefs and I I mean I had hustled my way through everything in Mexico and that's all I knew how to do was just walk in and talk to people and so this idea was so easy I was just like great I'll go and talk to people yeah and so I busted in through the back door at Providence walked up to Michael Simarusi and was Shut like up. I want a job you need to let me come in here and show you my Mexican ethics, my Mexican work ethic skills. And, and he was he like, was like uh, okay. Like it was an, you know, and so where did it was you start for him? Did, did you, did you start at the bottom? Oh yeah. $10 an hour. What know? were you doing? What were your Comey? Like, yeah, the whole bit. Um, I was literally picking herbs and mm. separating chives and cutting, you know, things that couldn't be fucked up. <laughs> It was just like the bottom of the barrel, you know, scrubbing down the kitchen in the evenings and cleaning the fish room and all that. So it was it was like starting from zero. And then what made you want to leave there or what made you want to keep going into different restaurants? Well, and I, I think this is a really good question because people always think that like the journey is nice and straight and it really isn't. Mm-hmm. And for me, I wanted to be a chef and that was my whole plan by going to Providence. I was I wanted to have a taco empire. So I thought, OK, you need to learn how to cook in the best restaurants and then you can like take all that, take what you learned in school and start your taco empire. Sure. And while being at Providence, I realized like, holy shit, I don't actually want to own a restaurant this is not actually what i truly want to do that was scary realization considering i had planned my whole damn future around that um and so somewhere along the lines in that journey i also realized smash up between me being an athlete me having done all these like fancy jobs in mexico i thought hold on hold on athlete yeah what did you do oh i did like running and i was on a swim team okay yeah so, innately, I feel I am an athlete. I wasn't, like, on a football team or right. something, but yes. Um, and backward, going backward there for a second, 
the first thing I did when I started running was get a sweet-ass outfit. And I was like, I'm a professional. Oh, yeah. It makes you feel legit. No, running outfits, I mean, any professional sports athletes should have a good outfit. Oh, hell yeah. So, bridge that sucker right into the kitchen. I was like, what the hell? We're making this amazing food, and we all look and feel like shit, and we all have really terrible uniforms. Like, that's weird. And it was right around the time I had realized I didn't necessarily want to own a restaurant. And it just sort of, like hit me one day that I wanted to make proper uniforms that made people look and feel super legit. And then from there, I just, I don't know. I'm like a doer. When I see something that makes sense, I'm just like, all right, let's do it. Let's do this. Let's go. Like, I don't, I don't wait. I don't fuck around. Like the decision I made to move out of Mexico, I decided it and two and a half weeks later I was gone. Classic. It's like, do it. just done. Like, so it's I'm sort out. of like a Here rip the go. band-aid type of approach. I'm totally a rip the band-aid. Dive into the ocean with like no, you know, nothing. Naked. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Naked. And then be like, oh. To a pool of jellyfish. I'll find some jellyfish. We'll cover it up. We'll get yeah. some seaweed. We'll come out. We'll look great. Totally. I'm like, I'll build this. I'll build the boat while I'm Flaring around in the ocean. Um, We're going to take a quick break. Okay. We're going to dive in after the break to how you made your first apron and then how you built your empire. Um, It's an empire. Yeah. It's an empire. Uh, We have a song from the archives on Snacky Tunes here on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. Kiss blown 
Talk to me not slow, break it down all the things I should know But I'm on an Arizona highway I'm pouring my heart out And I never wanna lose this feeling Wanna lose this feeling And I never wanna lose this feeling Wanna lose this feeling Hello and welcome back to Snacky Tunes, sitting with Ellen Bennett of Headley and Bennett. So you're in LA, you have this vision to create aprons, uh, and you're at Baco Mercat. Mm-hmm. Uh, and Providence. And Providence. I had two jobs. Remember two the hustle? Jobs. The, actually, I had three. I was a personal chef for a family in the mornings. How too. was that? It was great. I loved it. Um, <laughs> so you're working there. What year is this? Oh, God, you asked me the years, I don't remember. Something like that. Yes, that's right. Yeah, I Keeping did. track. Keeping track, track snacking tunes. Um, and so, you know, I don't want to get, we don't have to get too in the weeds, because yeah. I feel like the story's been out there of how, like, you saw the aprons, yeah, and yeah, you yeah. made it, and you, you grew it. But um, I want to ask, of all the times you've shared the story, of all the times you've talked about how, like, you made this, and then John and Vinny came calling, like... Yeah. What was the one thing that you took away that you thought this will make or break me? Like, what was the moment in there where you're like, I, if this is a moment where, like, if I don't move forward, I'm not going to have anything? Oof. I mean, let's be real. There's been so many of those moments, and they happen every year. No, no, I know. But at the beginning, at when, the very when beginning, there's no... I think that when I signed our first lease for mm-hmm. our first tiny little office, it was $400, and it was 400 square feet. And I felt... Wait, let me do the math. So, okay, I'm trying to figure out how much... <laughs> a dollar a square yeah. foot. And I felt like I was signing my soul to... The devil and God and all the other things that up there in the sky. That lease is the opposite of getting rid of all your stuff. Totally, it was like locking it in. Yeah. It was saying, "This is real, Ellen Bennett. Because this is not just the an aprons idea." Out yes. of your apartment, yes. And then to sign that lease for a spot, it was a, a very big deal for me. And so that was a moment for you where you're like, "Okay, like this." I don't want to say shackles, but like you are grounded. Oh yeah. And it was a one-year lease, and I didn't even have the credit to be able to take it on my own. I had to convince, like, a family member to sign, co-sign the lease. I mean, it was the low of the low. And I'll, I'll never forget the first chef that came to visit that space. Who was it? He was a chef from Pasadena. I actually, uh, I don't even remember his name. So it's been you, so you long. you did maybe forget. No. <laughs> no well, oh, God. Yeah, I don't remember his name. But I was like, you got to come see our new office. And, you know, he thought... Who knows? Maybe this is like some cool ass office. He walked in. We had a metro rack against the wall that Love was it. half built. Awesome. Nothing on the ground except for like three boxes of cardboard boxes with uh, some half made aprons and three rolls of fabric leaning on the wall. And he looked around and I was like, this is Hadley and Bennett. And he just, I don't know Slowly what he backpedal. <laughs> like, oh, I don't think I put a quarter in the meter. And he's like, I gotta uh, go. It just like leaps out the window. <laughs> so obviously, you know, uh, it took off. But what was, 
you know, as you're getting started, as you're doing one chef at a time and things like that, do you remember the tipping point? Do you remember the point? And obviously, as a businesswoman, you're never done growing. There's yeah. always the next challenge. But do you remember, was there a moment in those early years where you're like, okay, I think, I think we got something here. I think we're going to be okay. I never think we're going to be okay. I'm always like, oh my God, there's so much more to do. Yeah. But there... There were definitely definite highlights, like when Alton Brown said, this apron is fucking amazing, and I want to do a collaboration with you in the six, first six months of business. Like, I almost passed out. When we got into Heath Ceramics, it has this very special place in my heart. Like, I cried. You know, th- those are things that, oh, yeah. like, were very deep for me. Or when we got into the New York Times, and it felt like the st- the roof was caving in on our heads. So many people were calling. The New York Times, uh, Greg and I have to say, is a good, like, it's like, hey, mom and dad. Totally. Like, that's, yeah. that's my name in the Times. Yeah. Like, see? Or, like, Food and Wine did, like, a four or five page spread on us. That felt very real. So beyond the obvious aesthetic, I mean, they're beautiful yeah. aprons. They're designed for form and function and things like that. Why do you think people love and respond to these aprons so early on? I mean, I think like what I did in Mexico, the hustle has been very real from day one. Like, it's a sincere carving of a path. There's no like inauthenticity about it. It's like it was me with a bag of aprons talking to every damn person. And now it's a whole troop of people. But to watch someone, I think, take something from nothing and make it something and you helped contribute to it. creates this huge bond. So all these chefs like the John and Vinny's and, you know, the Martha Stewart's of the world, like, they literally helped build it. Like, they put their own little brick onto the sure. wall. So you feel, like, a bond to it. And I've always been very collaborative from day one, as has my team. So if I ever sat down with a chef, it was like, what do you think? How do you like? And it was never for me, it was for us. Because you let the chef design yeah. the uh, aprons. Um and most of the time, they are, I don't want to say straightforward, but you're like, I look at that. But what are some of the more crazy collabs where you're like, okay, uh, I, sure, let's, we'll sew that for you. <laughs> I mean, one of the craziest things we've done was recently with the hundreds. Oh, yeah. We did a freaking half, half camo apron, half navy apron. Oh, man. A bomb it's... on the pocket. And like for those who don't know, the hundreds are the hundreds is like the equivalent of supreme of the West Coast, but way more real, and way more awesome. Ooh, throwing some shade at supreme. mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, I am. I Um, mean, you know, that actually brings up a good point because we have this conversation about authenticity and yeah, um, and you know, does that matter with food? Like, you know, I'm I'm a Jewish guy, but I grew up. Eating. I'm a Jewish lady. Yeah, but I grew up eating ch- Chinese food, so yeah. I make a Chinese restaurant. And but at some level, like I'll never, you know, be Chinese. Doesn't matter. Things like that. But for your story, like there is this authenticity because you built it from the ground up. Right. And do you think that people, when they when they add that uniform to their kitchen, they're like, okay, I'm going to get this authenticity on my people as well, and like infuse it into the kitchen. I mean, I sure hope so. Like, yeah. that is the, the, that's the DNA of the company is that idea that you are, like, no matter who you are, where you're from, you put this on and you're, you can use this to get somewhere. Like, you can use this to be somebody. 
and to make your dreams come true. And that's, it's really like so internal, just like when I ran the marathon or just like when I climbed Mount Fuji, I just made a decision that I could do it. Mm -hmm. And I just, I always hope that when people wear our aprons, they're deciding that they can be better because of it. And I want to make sure that people understand that the aprons are not just for people in the kitchen. 100%. Because that would limit... I don't want people to come away from this and be like, oh, she makes kitchen aprons. Totally. I would say they started from there, but now they've evolved into so much more than that. Like we outfit potters and painters and baristas and, you know, carpenters, hairstylists, barbers, like anybody that's a maker, we outfit those people. Like next year we're doing a shoe with Vans and it's not a chef's shoe, it's a maker's shoe. So what does that mean? Meaning it's anti-grip, it's super cool, it's wet resistant. It has all these features that when you're running around hustling to make shit happen in the world, you need clothes to accompany it. So you can like shred in that shoe in all forms of life. Fuck yes, you can. Yeah. Shoe for shredding. Yes, exactly. Um, Clothes for shredding. Clothes for shredding. Now you make other clothes as well. You actually have gone beyond aprons. Um, What is that like? Because the apron is such a niche in many ways, you're like, okay, like, yeah. I sort of know who needs an apron. Yeah. And like, and like, and my profession <laughs> sort of dictates that I need an apron. Right. <clears throat> but you make socks and you make shirts. So what's the decision there of how do you put your, you know, toe in the water there and break through when someone goes like, uh, yeah, okay, I'll get an apron for you, but I'm not going to buy my shirts and my pants right. and my You know, socks. it's, it's like... It's trial and error, and it's scary, and it's leaping into the ocean again with no floaties on (laughs) and seeing what works and having to pivot along the way. I think you have to take risks uh, (laughs) to keep growing, and I am very (laughs) unstagnant, and I like to keep evolving all the time. So I'm always asking people, like, what else do you want to see? What do you love? What are you wearing? Let me look at that. Like our our eyeballs are open at all times, and we're always listening to. Um, what has the response been to all the other gear? Mm-hmm. I mean, for example, socks, runaway fucking success. I had no idea. I was just like, socks are like if you can market that sock. Ah, oh, they're so awesome. Like for us, the. I mean, these, yes, they're called chef socks, but let's be real. Anyone can wear them because we put compression on them, which makes Mm. your blood flow better. They have mesh paneling on the top, so they're breathable. They're such fun colors. You can look at them on our website. They're super cute. com, Or on Um, your Instagram. Or on my Instagram, Ellen Marie Bennett, which is, you know, a real circus, if you ask me. A real... A real circus. How many (laughs) average posts do you do a day? I post... 10 to 15 Instagram stories a day. Yeah. I post zero posts every day. I do maybe two to three posts a week. Interesting. Which is backwards from what I used to do. I used to post every single day religiously. Instagram stories were And now Instagram stories is everything. I mean, beyond just the fun of seeing posts who's doing cool stuff and hanging out with awesome chefs and has a giant pig as a pet. Um, shout out to Oliver. Kosher pig, what up? What up? Um, uh, how have you seen the interactivity with people who like want to follow, learn from you, know yeah. more about the brand? Like, Do you see it as something that has gone beyond like, hey, it's just me, like, to like an actual like tool of the business? Oh, for sure. I think it's a tool for myself to stay inspired, but it's also a tool where I 
can inspire other people and give them a glimpse of what it is like to actually run a company. And it's not just like butterflies and rainbows. And I do show that. Like I. Oh yeah, Butterfly Tuesdays is. Oh yeah, just uh, crushing it. Crushing it. So <laughs> no, good. No, no, but I definitely, you know, if I'm here at the factory at ten o'clock at night on a Friday, I'm showing it. I and mean, I, you I, definitely. I've been like, I put in a good day. I put in a really hard day. Let's get on Instagram stories. Oh, cool. Alan did a 15-hour day. I'm nothing. I'm absolutely <laughs> what I'm the laziest piece of shit in the world. Like, Yeah, I've actually had several people say that to me. They're like, you made me feel like shit you made me feel because like, I didn't do enough. Oh, I'm sorry I had a 60-hour week. Sorry, Alan. <laughs> but, I mean, have people written to you and been like, you know, your hard work? Like, you don't hide the work. Yeah, no, yes, definitely, and I think that it's a beautiful thing, and while I hate social media sometimes, there's something so incredible that I can connect with people who are in freaking Russia, and be like, inspiring that person, and having that person now going and working harder, or going to the gym, because I told them the best antidepressant you could ever do is fucking exercise, you know, shit like that I think is really awesome, and I would love, I wish more CEOs shined a light into their life their real life yeah because it's it's either like glamorous and glitzy i'm at runway shows every day or they don't show it at all like the jody berg ceo vitamix ain't getting on her fucking instagram stories to show us her board meetings no but i wish she would i think it's and and i want to with enough time i've sort of land on the point that sometimes people forget that you are like a, a ceo yeah boss like interview by Forbes, you know, fast company, no joke, and a different type of CEO. And uh, how do you see yourself as a modern CEO? And what would you like to see out of other people who run businesses at the level that you do as a positive, like, role model influence in the way that, because now people see business and think CEO, they're like, fuck you and your million dollar, yeah. you know, bonuses like that, but you're a different type. Yeah. And so what would you like to see out of your fellow people and what are you doing to change that? I mean, I think for sure leading by example, mm-hmm. like you, you just have to be the part <laughs> to do it. And it's really hard. I mean, truly, I struggle with being the, you know, you could say I'm like the brand ambassador mm-hmm. for the company, but I'm also the one that's signing the checks yeah. and looking at the P&Ls and making the hard calls on who we need to let go of or do we need to add this on or should we take out a loan to make this happen? Like those are decisions that at the end of the day I have to sign off on mm-hmm. and my team is so amazing, but I still have to sign off on it right. at the end of the day. And that is a really big burden and not everyone necessarily should have that burden in their life. And so I kind of like to show people what it's like because we also need amazing employees. We also need entrepreneurial spirits in our companies. That doesn't mean you have to go out and be a CEO just because it looks cool to to be a CEO. Mm-hmm. Like there's more than one path. And I think that's important to show people too. Because, you know, for a while it's like, oh, being a chef, it's like so cool. And you don't see all the shit storms behind the scenes that it takes right. to be a chef. And it's the same as being a CEO. Like, it's fucking hard work. I have more gray hair probably on my 30-year-old head than like the average 40-year-old. And I love it, but I also have days where I'm like, good God, this is brutally hard. And let me tell you, I got stamina. So for me to say that, it's like, ooh. Yes. Well, I want to end on one thing. Uh, when you were in Forbes this year, 
the College of the Queen of Hustle, which is after everything I think we talked about and we've seen is true, but you said uh, you gave four points of what it means to hustle. And the one that I love the most was that sharing is free. And what I loved about it is because we've chatted before about there's always people coming up from behind, stepping on yeah. your toes, and about, like, uh, stealing apron designs. And I know, you know, you got to, like, you know, be understanding, but also, like, hey, like, step off. Yeah. So when you talk about sharing and running a business and being unique, because let's be honest, there is a competitive spirit here. You want to be the best. You want to yeah. have the best stuff. What do you mean when you talk about sharing is free? Well... I think that the most exciting moments in my life are when I can help other people and to coach one of my employees into a better way to approach something or if I can help a young business owner who's coming to me and saying, hey, I don't know how to do this. What are your thoughts? Can I sit with you? And that I can help that person. That doesn't cost me anything. Mm -hmm. And I'm helping change that person's life one way or the other. And many times with my own staff, I'm telling them like, hey, I'm pushing you hard, not just for today, but for your whole life. Like if you can stretch your mental muscles here and learn this new skill, that's not just going to help you at Headley Minute. That's going to help you in your own life. And that is so, I love to help people. So that like really like plucks at my heartstrings. Mm -hmm. And I think everyone can do it. Everyone has knowledge. So like, why not share it? Why not reach out to someone and say, well, I'm just going to make your life a little bit better. And I feel like it makes for great karma because anytime I really need help with something, I can reach out to anybody. And most of the time, people are like, sure, I'll help you. And you don't feel like you're like being like a, a leech and like just like, I only reach because I need totally. something. Totally. You're, like, you're like, no, I help people. That's how it works. Yeah. And you, you give and you get and it you, you should give without expecting. Um, but it's, it's a wonderful thing to be able to share that. And, you know, like last week I adopted a family for baby to baby, which is this cool foundation. And this year we gave tens of thousands of dollars to red the foundation. Mm -hmm. Um, we made two aprons, they sold out, we raised tons of money and we're like helping fight AIDS. The fact that I can do that through our company is deeply profound for me and makes this not just a business, but it makes it like I'm doing my part to change the world. And that's how the world changes. Awesome. Well, Alan, I can't thank you enough. Uh, if people want to get the aprons or any of the other or stuff. Or work coats or chef coats or, chef or coats bandanas. Or limited or edition <laughs> Oliver enamel pins. Exactly. That are free in packages right now. Uh, where can they go? Headleyandbennett.com, H-E-D-L-E-Y-A-N-D-B-E-N-N-E-T-T. -T, or my Instagram, yes. Ellen Marie Bennett, which is very ridiculous, or Headley and Bennett on Instagram, too. And if you're ever in L.A., please come visit the Apron Factory. We do tours, and you can ride our zip line and slide and swings and hang out and watch our manufacturing go down. It's awesome. And, yeah, it's pretty great. Awesome. Well, I can't thank you enough for giving us some time. Thanks, Mr. Snacky Tunes. Thank you. We have another track from the archives on Snacky Tunes and then a live performance here on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. One. A two, a one. Now blue ain't the word for the way that I feel. There's a storm that's brewing in this heart of mine. This ain't no crazy dream, I know that it's real 
You're someone else's love now, you're not mine. Crazy arms that reach to hold somebody new, while my yearning heart keeps saying you're not mine. My trouble, my no suit to another, you'll be with, and that's why I'm lonely. All the time Jameson Fink. I'm the senior digital editor at Wine Enthusiast Magazine, and we're starting off the new year with what many people do, some resolutions. Mine all revolve around wine, because that's kind of what I do, and I have no uh, fitness goals in my life right now. But let's just get to the wine. Um, the first thing I want to do this year that I feel like I haven't done a very good job of is to break out of a rut. And I, uh, okay, confession time, most of the time I'm drinking white wine, sparkling wine, and rosé, I would say I drink those 90 plus, maybe 95% of the time. Honestly, I just don't drink a lot of red wine. I love red wine. Um, I enjoy it. Some of my favorite wines in the history of the world have been red wines, but I find myself mostly drinking wine, honestly, to sort of like thirst slaking refreshment type of stuff and some there are great red wines for that like chillable reds which i've talked about before on snacky tunes but um you know you'll usually unless i'm having like pasta at a restaurant or um a hearty dish something with like mushrooms or steak 
honestly, I'm drinking, um, I'm drinking white wine. Um, and I just think that white wines are also underrated as far as you can drink white wines with steak or with uh, really anything they can carry throughout the meal. But um, I really want to do a better job of drinking more red wines on a regular basis and drinking them just for pleasure on their own and not just, um, oh, I'm having this dish now I must, uh, you know, force myself to have a red wine. So I want to be more more adventurous in that way and break out of my rut. It's just like, I don't know, it's like going to a restaurant or like your favorite candy bar. Like, look, when I go into a convenience store and I see um, a Milky Way or a Snickers, I'm probably going to get a Snickers or a Milky Way because those are my, well, actually I would get Snickers. So it's really tempting to get Snickers 99 times out of 100, but I just got to um, try something different, like maybe, um, I don't know, 100 grand bar. I like those a lot. So yes, and that, and just to say that is drinking more red, more red, more red, more red wines. I definitely want to drink more red wines. Um, and also uh, another rut that I'm in, this is, I guess all my, um, my resolutions, my wine resolutions are very rut themed, breaking out of a rut. But one thing I think I do, um, a little too much is just seeking out the weirdest wine possible and ordering that and drinking that. Like I only drink weird wines. Like, um, and when I say weird, I, I'm being a little, um, I mean a little silly. Uh, I don't mean it to be in a pejorative way or it diminishes the quality and the importance of the wine. But if someone's like, Hey, here's a Trousseau Gris from California with like, you know, skin contact and, um, it's an orange wine and it's served in a, it's bottled in a one liter bottle and it's a, a concrete egg was involved in all this. I'm like, Ooh, ooh, ooh that's like catnip for me and all New York wine people. Cause we live in this crazy, uh, wine bubble where we can get anything we want. It's crazy. And we just seem to gravitate towards, I mean, if you look at Instagram feeds, everyone's just drinking a bunch of, you know, like weird, cool wines like that, which I love. I love that stuff. They are weird. They are cool. They are delicious. But I really want to um, focus back on the classics like um, Chianti, uh, Chianti Classico, Chianti uh, Classico Reserva. I mean, those are some killer wines, beautiful red wines that are, uh, you can buy them, you can put them in your cellar, you can drink them now. They're amazing food wines, just things like that. A Bordeaux, I mean, Bordeaux, red and white. I mean, you can get killer Bordeaux for like 10, 15 bucks. It's like beautiful bottles of wine. You'll be like, wow. And they're ready to drink now. They're fresh, they're fun, they're really good. So definitely uh, return to the classics is important to me. Uh, a couple other things is, um, look, I work for this magazine. We also cover, you know, beer and cocktails a lot, especially cocktails. Um, I'm going to say it's going to toot our horn. We do a pretty good job covering cocktails, a really good job. A lot of that is thanks to Kara Newman, who's our spirits editor. But um, just um, sort of that you don't have to be in a silo. You're not like, I'm a wine drinker. I'm a cocktail drinker. I'm a beer drinker. And never the, the three shall meet. But um, I love all those things. And I, I think it's fun to talk to someone who's like a, a cocktail geek or a beer geek. And I think you'll find that you have a lot more in common than you think. And you can discuss, I don't know, maybe if you like IPAs, like bracing IPAs, you'd like a really racy Sauvignon Blanc or something like that. It's just fun. It's a fun conversation to have. And, you know, instead of going to the wine bar, go get a cocktail with your friend and try something different and, you know, get out of your comfort zone and see what you can learn. I think finally, along those lines, the last thing I want to do is um, to drink more cider, more hard cider. Um, I actually lived on a uh, a farm, an organic family farm with orchards and a cidery um, like six years ago on the Olympic Peninsula um, of Washington State, Finn River. Um, their ciders are amazing. The people are lovely. I highly recommend uh, you checking that out, checking them out. Um, if they have distribution in your state or if you can order it or if you're lucky enough to live in Washington State, go visit. It's, uh, it's a delightful oasis from the, the modern world. Um, 
So I would say cider too. Um, has a lot of properties, you know. I mean, it's like if you like beer, if you like wine. I love these ciders that are sort of made in that champagne style. Um, they have the kind of bubbles I like as far as champagne. They're really dry and crisp and refreshing, and they're really elegant. If you're not, uh, you know, into sparkling wines or champagnes, uh, I would definitely recommend trying a cider. So those are my resolutions, wine resolutions for uh, this year, and. Um, I encourage you to uh, share your own, uh, talk amongst your friends, and just uh, really just try something new or try something old, which is new too, like the classics. So thanks a lot. Cheers. Bye. The following program has been brought to you by Tabard Inn. Tabard Inn, Washington, D.C.'s quintessential small hotel, is located on a quiet tree-lined street just five blocks from the White House. Vibrant yet unassuming, the Tabard is comprised of 40 sleeping rooms, each unique in character and design. Feast on eclectic American cuisine in their acclaimed restaurant or enjoy a cocktail and listen to live jazz in one of their cozy Victorian seating areas. Mingle with travelers from around the world who find the Tabard the only place to stay when taking their travels to Washington. For more information, visit tabardin.com. The following program has been brought to you by Root 11 Potato Chips. From the moment Route 11 potato chips dropped their first batch of chips back in the early days of 1992, they understood their destiny as a high-quality producer. Instead of succumbing to the frenzy of mass production, they took advantage of their small size and made chipping a personal art form. The payoff was immediate. An incredible potato chip. With a secret recipe and superior ingredients, their mission is to make an outstanding product in a safe and clean environment. In this world of uncertainty that we live in, Route 11 Potato Chips believes comfort food should be just that. Know where your food comes from. For more information, visit rt11.com. Welcome back to Snacky Tunes. I'm one half your host, Greg Bresnitz, in studio live for the first episode of the season. We have no ice. Welcome. Yo, what up? Hi. We have Sean and Jamie. How you guys doing? Real good. Fantastic. You, you were the uh, first band for season 10 of the show. Ooh. Well, muscle tough. Thank <laughs> you. Snacky tunes. Snacky <laughs> tunes. Season ten. Um, Godspeed. We heard about you from our friends over at Oh My Rockness for being. Oh yeah. Not only 2016, but 2017 hardest working, one of the hardest working bands in New York City. How did you stack on 2016 versus 2017? Harder or less hardworking? I think that um, 2016 was like the big one. That was the big one. But we're but our place on the list was almost the same. I feel like we played more gigs in 2016 than 2017. Well, I think there's just so many gigs all around now. It's everyone plays so much. It's great. But uh, we had a couple like Grimstreaker and Thick who are on here. Mm. They they uh, they they nodded out on the list too. They play a lot. They both do. Play- both those groups play a lot. We play with Thick a lot. Actually, we we probably played like six gigs with them or something. I think we have another one in February. Hmm. Perfect. Uh, let's go back a little bit. You started in a group, uh, the Brooklyn What, which was 2017 to 2015. And you all met in high school. Um, I met a few of the guys in high school. I went to Edward Armour High School in Brooklyn. Any significance behind the high school? Is that one of those like magnet performing arts schools? Yeah, it's a school that started in the 70s um, with a more loose uh, system of what the kids do and a lot of like a lot of art. <laughs> what is a loose system of what the kids do? <laughs> Uh, you get to make your, you get to choose your classes, and they let you hang out in the hallways. You're like, I want recess five, <laughs> time, five times a day. Yeah, recess. it's supposed to be more like college. Yeah. Um, yeah, they started in the '70s. A bunch of famous people went there: uh, Marissa Tomei, Basquiat for a minute, um, Adam Yauch from the Beastie Boys, the filmmaker Darren Aronofsky. 
the Quite. rapper Little Mama. <laughs> oh, oh, and Joey Badass, uh, uh, young. The, these rappers are younger than me, and I, we didn't go to school at the same time. But yeah, some rappers <laughs> came out of there, and uh, perfect. Yeah, there's a lot of music and art, and and, uh, and, know, and how did you meet your bandmates, and you know how did you start to to put this group together? Oh, well, this group was. Um, I started writing some other material that I thought was a little uh, sad for the Brooklyn Wide because we were like a more of an anthemic rock band and. Uh, I started writing some sad tunes, and um, Jesse Katz was the drummer of the Brooklyn Wide, but we uh, recorded as a duo, and then we started playing this other material casually, and Jesse's girlfriend, who's also my best friend, Gwen, uh, she sings harmony, and she started singing with us, and John Apollillo was also in the Brooklyn Wide, and he just started playing with us. So we just had this other group, and then the Brooklyn Wide stopped playing a couple years ago, and around that time, Sean joined us. Hmm. And um, now we have Jordan Smith and Sam Braverman, and we have a, a six or seven piece lineup, depending on who's around. So we're playing this huge <laughs> band. And it's funny because I wanted to start a band that was simple and not a lot of people to play simple songs. And also, the, the songs aren't really sad anymore. The, the, if that was your yeah. intention, the tone has changed. I, I think. Tone has changed. Yeah. <laughs> it, could these now be Brooklyn What songs? Have they? No, <laughs> it's a different sound. I started listening to the Lemonheads a lot and Big Star. Um, more songwritery music. Brooklyn What was more punk, and this is like a few notches more introspective, I think, uh, and more pop mm. also. What is it? It's always interesting to hear, you know, what couldn't you get out of your previous band that led you to just to start writing under a new moniker, even though it wasn't no, it wasn't no ice, but what was it that'd be like, I can't say this through this current project and I have to make something new? Well, it's very funny the way the band ended up turning out, but uh, Brooklyn What was like a really energetic, punk, soul kind of band. Uh, and people would come and get drunk and party. And I kind of was like, I'm tired of being the party guy. <laughs> Isn't that always the way? But then uh, I ended up being the party guy again, I think. But like, I didn't mean to. I wanted to be like, I'm a serious songwriter. Take me seriously. <laughs> you're like, you're like, Please. He, he needed a short break from being the party guy, but <laughs> what, he's back. Was the short break like two months or two years? I don't even know. Probably less. <laughs> it was like, it was like I need a week off, okay, guys? I'm going to come out with a new moniker and a new identity. <laughs> well... <laughs> I guess. Does this mean double the invites? If you're like the old party guy and the new party guy? <laughs> a lot of invites. Lot I of send out <laughs> lots of invites. I can tell you that. <laughs> I read this book about the replacements and um, Paul Westerberg, who's you know one of the more interesting rock personalities, <laughs> there was something about him that I <laughs> felt the same, like I did the same thing. It was like after the replacements, he like wanted people to take him seriously. So we started talking about how influenced he was by Joni Mitchell and John Coltrane. And that is literally exactly what I did at this time in my life. <laughs> they went, oh, I see him in a whole a whole yeah. new light. You're like drinking beer and taking shots in the back. You're like, no, Joni, they, they really, you know, parking lots, you know, really just it, it's... It speaks to me. <laughs> it's, so, yeah. It's funny to find out you're pretentious and also unoriginal. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, wait. Oh, sorry. Just for clarification, you said that and then you read it after. And then I read it afterwards. Oh, yeah. But I was totally <laughs> doing the same thing. It's like, what are you listening to? I'm just like Coltrane, <laughs> Joni Mitchell, 
really, I'm working on some really serious new it's material. So, yeah. <laughs> really different from I, my old I just, I just love, like, I wonder if they would even be like, be like, really, I'm your reference for, like, slowing down. John Coltrane, <laughs> you picked a jazz guy to be like, we're taking it mellow. Because those guys don't know how to party or, <laughs> or do anything late at night at all. Uh, can we hear a song? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, what do you want to do a uh, Straight to Your Heart? Sure, sure. Yeah. Okay, so okay we're going to yeah. prepare. We'll We've got the scale. Casio SK-1 Perfect. filling in for Jesse Katz. Great. Here we go. Wait, here, let's see.
What's really great about the band is how all of the other members are doing projects. Uh, how do you find time to balance all of it? And let's also talk about some of them. Like, I know a couple of them, founders of magazines, editors, etc. Yeah, we've got, like, a, a very busy group. Uh, what we don't do is have band practice. <laughs> oh, that's one way to do it. That's oh, see now that's why that's why we're always on you know, the the hardest working bands is because the only way that we play is by doing shows. Yeah. You know we've ha- we've had a number of bands uh, who will remain nameless because I don't want to sell them out. Come on here and have had said that's how we do practice. We just get paid for shows, uh, and it's like hmm that seems unfair to some and fair to the people on stage. Um, well. Everyone seems to like it, <laughs> so it's not a big problem. We actually do practice occasionally. We it's do. It's not done a... We play more gigs than we have band practice. Yeah. Some, some once, bands once are practice Yeah, once maybe. Once a month we have band practice. What's the, what's the ratio do you have to be to be a practice band to live gigs? Like four times in the practice studio a week, one, like one show a month? Well, we also... Because when... When we first started playing shows, we practiced a lot. So I think that there was the initial buildup. You know, you put in, it's like... That's what you put going, the work yeah, in. Yeah, you put the work in. Then this you got to get yeah. one set that's good yeah. that you don't, you're not going to ever have to apologize for. And once you've got that set, and then if you have to change it, then you can kind of be like, all right, everyone do your homework, mm-hmm. and then you show up and play it. And we're just... The thing is with our group is that there's a lot of us, but we... Uh, the chemistry of the group beats the <laughs> the power of rehearsal. <laughs> Whereas in the other, you know, that may not always be true, but like, you know, uh, also like there's an ethos, which uh, I really like, and everyone who joins the band has to sort of get down with it, is that like, I think that rock and roll is best performed a little casually, and I think everyone in the band has to be comfortable playing on their feet a little bit, and not just... The point is never to just do the same set again like we do. Oh, that was good. Let's do it exactly the same. I don't really like to play like that. And, uh, you know, everyone in the group kind of like like rises to the occasion if we have a little curveball or we play something a little different or something like that. There has to be or, an element know. where you, there's a little bit where you, you don't know what's going to happen. I mean, it, I will say that as you get older and you see bands who are super polished, you have the opportunity to see them maybe two, three times and even their banter in between songs is almost verbatim. It does take a little bit of that magic out of yeah, the show. Yeah, that's, that's a little, yeah. Yeah, rock and roll shouldn't be about going through the motions, and that's just what happens to people when they sort of, like, pass their hump of creativity and they just, like, play a circuit. Uh, and that's just so boring. Because to me, like, the show is the most fun part. The show is the best. Like, hmm. you want to, everything you're doing, you want to get to that show and you want to get the crowd. And then you, like, people come and they pay $8 or $10 or whatever the fuck to come see you. And, like, you really have to, like, entertain them. And playing the dude, doing the same thing over and over again is not how you do that. So, you in gonna, my opinion, are you going to perpetually be before your hump of creativity? <laughs> yeah, that you, you have to, you have to raise your bar so you're always behind the hump. You don't want to get ahead of it. That's terrible. <laughs> it's terrible to be ahead of the hump. And you know it, too. <laughs> like, you know, you'll meet a musician and they'll be like, well, the record I made in 2010, now that was great. It's like, I know, I don't want to be like that. You yeah. know what I mean? Or like, we sounded really good mm-hmm. the summer of, you know, this year. It's like, no, you want to like. So is every you know. show your best show? No. No, 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 no. no. That is, that is the, the game you play. <laughs> uh, well, two of your members um, also do, like I mentioned, literary efforts. One of them does Suffragette City, and the other one does Having a Whiskey Coke. Yeah, Gwyn Galitzer is the editor 
of Suffragette City, which is an intersectional feminist zine. Uh, and it's a very good-looking magazine, too. It's, oh, a, zine, it's a zine in ethos. Really does, yeah. But, um, and she does events, fundraisers. Uh, she publishes other people's zines. It's a really incredible project. I've, as a, as a, um, a male, I've done everything I can to help, uh, you know, but it's really a project by, by women and uh, femme-identifying people that they'd really come together as a community in a very beautiful way. And Jesse. Aside from being a Casio today, <laughs> a Casio keyboard. Uh, yes. <laughs> aside from being a nasty drummer, he's a really incredible poet. And um, some years ago, actually, there of this uh, this event having a whiskey coke with you is related to No Ice also because he started doing an event at Freddie's Bar in Park Slope, which is one of my favorite bars. And if you ever want to go to a bar, you should go there. Uh, a literary event followed by music. I'm a writer too and we started making a zine and having readings and then we would have music afterwards but from the first one on it would always end in a casual performance by me and Jesse and Gwen and whoever else was there. So before the No Eyes group actually happened most of the members of No Eyes had participated in a casual set where I would call songs before we play them, tell everyone the chords, take requests from the crowd. We learned a set of Gwen loves to sing doo-wop harmonies. So we learned a set of, um, you know, like Phil Spector, girl group, Motown-type songs. And we were playing that set before we were doing the no, no Ice material, but in a similar lineup. And that was an impetus is, like, like playing these, qu- like, sort of bar band sets. You know? how, how did we get together? Casual sets. Casual <laughs> sets. <laughs> <laughs> but I, I just want to understand, so you would call the chords on, the, like, the progressions for the songs for the covers and be like... Yeah, like, hey, sometimes just- we'd learn them, but who, whoever was showing up would end up playing and, you know, it just sort of, like, it's not like playing songs, on your feet. Yeah, it's not like those songs were the most complicated songs. No. Pretty- but that's why we started there, yeah. I think. And now you've evolved. Yeah, but we can still do the we can still do the cover set. I mean, we'll me and Sean did a, a couple sets recently where we just t- blindly took requests from the crowd as fundraisers, and and it was like, well, if we nail it, ten dollars <laughs> fundraisers for. Uh, we did one for the um, po- victims Puerto of the hurricane, Puerto yeah, Rico. Yeah. We did one at Our Wicked Lady for. Um, it was um, a local s- domestic violence. Yeah, domestic violence. Um, Something. Group. Any cause that's good, we'll do it. But we've done it with no ice, and we did do us, uh, and we'll take cover. We'll take cover requests from the crowd, and if we nail them, it's ten dollars, and if we suck at it, then it's whatever you want. I mean, if you suck at them, it should still be ten dollars, nine dollars. I think so. We- <laughs> someone's like, someone's like, you know what? You missed a note. Five dollars for the. Well, no, but, no, no, no. But the caveat is sometimes they're really bad. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> can we hear another? Can we hear another song? Absolutely. Uh, what, are you, what are you gonna play for us? Let's play all night. Sure. Spending all my time on the front lines 
You know that I'm no good at goodbyes Got to get you on my side All the time, all night, all night and every night You know that I'm no good at staying home Baby, I've been out dancing on my own Yeah, I know that love can be a danger zone All the time, all night, all night and every night I ain't looking for one night stand What do I have to do to be your man? I gotta fight every night I gotta fight all night for your love. Your friends say I'm all wrong for you, but I got what it takes to defining things of your introduction to your bands are your music videos which i love oh thank you thank you they're really great uh i love the first one and maybe you can talk about kind of how they evolved and where they started 
but Eat the Heart summer version, which is obviously a tribute to Godard, Breathless. Yeah, Eat the Heart, yeah. Uh, how did you come up with it? Who's the other person starring against you in the video? Oh, that was my friend Katie Davis, who did some acting, but she had a, a real Gene Seberg haircut at the time. <laughs> so she had that look. So that I, And, uh, yeah, I wanted to... Um, I don't know how I had that. I just love... I love Breathless, and uh, I, I don't know. I like doing, like... I feel like a music video is a good uh, chance to do a homage in a not corny way, mm. since it's a little two, three-minute movie anyway. Um, I love film, so I wanted to, like, do a little, like, sort of film nerd nod with that. And my friend Saskia, who I, I know from growing up in Brooklyn, is a great filmmaker, and we'd sort of knock that out. Just two people, you know. I also feel videos are a good insight into the people around bands, which I think you get with Castle Braid. Yeah. Which yeah. is filled with so many cameos. Maybe you can talk a little bit about who's in there, yeah. how it worked. I mean, it looks like every kind of underground band in Brooklyn kind of makes its way through that video. Well, that one I directed uh, with my friend Brian Chalami. We worked on it together. Um, yeah, I, I mean, music videos are a really good way to uh, just like show, uh, you know, your 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 crowd and like you know just put just put them in the video you know it's good so but yeah I wrote this narrative because Castle Braid is sort of a narrative song and then I wrote this video that was like not I don't like when videos are the same as the words like the story I don't know that's boring to me or whatever but I wrote like another story um, and then my friend Rose Blanche who uh, sings in Prima were truly one of the best groups and you should have them on uh, and she's also just very smart and has a lot of good things to say done uh <laughs> so that's uh, so, you know so i i cast her as a as a, the star of of castle braid and then we had um russell heimwitz who's my roommate and he plays in chomper and dream police and nine other bands and uh <laughs> our friend ina who's in the 94 Knicks. and the, yeah we had like the other band you know i wanted <laughs> i decided to have like um like in Sgt. Pepper's movie, it's like uh, there's the Bee Gees and there's like the evil band and it's Aerosmith or whatever. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, I have a thing like that. So, yeah, we got Russ and Ina and Alex Trippinger and, uh, to be in her band, to be like the, the opposite band, play opposite No Eyes. And then we got, and then, the, and then there's a scene with um, to some yuppies. And then I had Ben Jaffe um, <laughs> from Pill as one of the yuppies. Yeah, so there's like, there's some, yeah, some very cool people in that video. And uh, Joe Aikman's in the video who ended up, who we did a video with now. He's also a filmmaker, but he plays in. Toyzan, another great group that you should have on. Done. Got a lot of a lot of good recommendations. I mean, for the se- this, this is episode one of the new season, so the the season is uh, wide open. Nice. Yeah, we'll talk. We'll talk bands after. Yeah, yeah. There's so many great. You know, it's, uh, we're we're really lucky. Like, mm. and even even on the block, like Sean and I live in the same building, and even on the block we live on, there's like 20 great musicians. We're just like you know, we're up to our knees and in, in yeah. talent. And Do, don't you find <laughs> yeah. it? I mean, I always find it funny when people try to tell me that. Um, New York is dead for musicians. Blah blah blah. Blah blah blah. And I and I I just want to be all the venues that you loved are just gone, and you don't want to go find a new thing. It's what you know is dead. Right. But there's all. I mean, I can tell you from booking this show for ten years, mm-hmm. I've never wanted at any point for a great Brooklyn band or a great New York band. Yeah, there's yeah, always new, young, amazing talent that's coming through, and it's just consistently blowing me away. So just to hear on your block the twenty, all you naysayers be gone <laughs> oh yeah it just you know our our battle is uphill sure you know because there's so many uh 
you know, it's like uh, everyone wants to come here and, and take your spot, kind of. Oh, yeah. You know. But there's so many, yeah. yeah, I mean, like, even, yeah, all, like, I, I can't tell you how many times, like, a casual acquaintance, I've, like, checked out their music and be like, oh, fuck, you're, oh, my God, you're really good. <laughs> you know, like, I, it, it happens all the time. Yeah, there's a you lot know. of really good people around. Is there still one position that's hard to find? Like, it, like can never find a good drummer. Can never drummer. Find a, yeah. Okay. New York is hard for drummers because no one has room for the drum set, and uh, you don't have a car. And like mm. drummer, like I think in other areas, like people will drummers will just drive around with their drum set and play gigs or whatever. But right. most drummers have nine bands. The drummers are thinned <laughs> out. Like everyone, everyone wants a drummer. Maybe you can rent out your Casios for, uh, for the weekend. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so what's up for 2018 besides getting back on the 2018 hardest working band list? Oh yeah, we're gonna we gotta get up a couple <laughs> notches. Yeah. <We> gotta. <laughs> what's um? You guys, Sounds exhausting. You guys are back in the studio making some new music. We um, we have we've essentially started the process that'll end in a new record. Hopefully by the end of this year. Um, and we're talking to labels, and uh, we've got um, new, new songs. Some of them are coming up in the set. We have a video coming out for We Get High Together um, from the last record, which we did with Joe Wakeman from Toyzan, who's also just an auteur filmmaker. He's very talented. And um, that should be out pretty soon. Um, I mean, that's pretty good. Yeah, yeah, and and, and a lot of other stuff too. Yeah. We'll be playing plenty of gigs. We'll be, you know, yeah. we're not we're not gonna let our friends at Oh My Rockness down. We're playing a lot of gigs. Our new material. We actually the last two songs we played. These are these oh, are the new songs. These are unreleased yeah. No Eye songs that we just sort of have added to our set recently. Uh-huh. So that's like a little taste of the new record. Snacky Tunes exclusive. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, we want to make sure we have time for one more song. Right. Last question: If you could describe your band as either a food or dish. What would it be? Oh my god! Well, I, I think I have to let Jamie decide this. You know? <laughs> <laughs> a food or dish? Hmm. Well, would it, ha- it would have to be something with a lot of elements. So it couldn't sure. be like a one thing. Maybe like a paella. You got a, a little. You got a little shrimp. <laughs> you got some clams. <laughs> You got a nice. That, that you makes, got a nice that, that makes rich, logical right? sense, but I'm not feeling it. We're not you know? a paella. No. no, 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 no. no, no. Uh, how about like a bagel schmear? Oh, okay. That's okay. that's right. Like a bit like a, everything bagel, cream cheese, right, right, lox, right. capers, a cucumber, an onion. If you're nasty, you know, <laughs> which you are. <laughs> well, thanks so much for joining us. Where can people find your music? Um, we're on all the all the major outlets. We're uh, <laughs> no, uh, Bandcamp, noicebandcamp.com. We're on Spotify, Amazon, iTunes. We'll be performing in, uh, at Sunnyvale on February first, I believe. Mm. Is our next gig. Um, yeah, perfect. Well, big shout out! Thanks for everyone tuning in to our new season. Um, and thank you for having us. Thank you so much for being on here. What's the name of the last song? We're going to play our hit. (laughs) This is The Cemetery. Great. Thanks for listening. We will be back next week with another live episode of Snacky Tunes. Rock and roll. Do 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 do
this through But I can't control my mind When my eyes are looking at you And I know that this will pass Listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. 
For our freshest content and to hear about exclusive events, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Rate the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join our community by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.